Father God, we come to you today. We come to you through the merits of Christ and Christ alone. We, we can bring nothing to you on our own but our sin. And so we know that we have, we have been able to come to you this morning solely by the sheer grace that you have bestowed upon us that we don't deserve. The favor you have given us and you have called us to yourself. You have made us a new creation in Christ. You have set us apart from the world. And you have called us into service. And this morning, I need, I need you to help us to understand that. I need you to help me to understand the weightiness of that great call and our new position and the new mission you have given us in this world as Christians, those who have been sought and bought by the blood of Christ and by your pure and powerful sovereign grace. Father, I pray that you'd help us all to, to worship as we hear your word, as we listen to your word, as we rejoice in your word this morning. I pray that you would be magnified, Jesus. You would be made much of this morning in our hearts and in our actions. And I pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have you ever wondered who you are and why you're here? I, I think if you're really honest with yourself, you're going to say yes to that. You've wondered who you are and, and you've wondered, why do I exist? Why am I here at this moment in time? Why did God choose me? Why did God put me here? And, and First Peter has been helping us answer those questions. And he is go, he's going to actually help us understand it a bit more clearly this morning as we go further into chapter 2. If you would, open your Bibles with me to First Peter chapter 2. And I want to read the passage from verse 4 down to verse 10. Primarily, we'll be looking at verses 9b and 10 this morning. But I want us to, to read this because I think in this, we learn about who we are and we learn about why we are here here in this church, here in this world, here in this community, here in our family. Why, why has God sovereignly sought us and placed us here this morning? I think Peter answers those questions for us in the reading of God's word here. We see that. Chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him, and this him here is referring to Jesus. And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieved, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. But you, now he's addressing you this morning, but you are a chosen race. If you're a believer, he's speaking to you. God is speaking directly to you in Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. This is who you are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And here's why you're here. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, compassion, grace. From a sovereign God. First Peter chapter 2. We learned over the past few weeks. That the church 
is made up of living stones, is how Peter is describing us. We are, last week we talked about we are chosen stones, commissioned stones, consecrated stones. Stones that are basically the property of God. We belong to God and we're placed together in the church, stone upon, us, upon stone, for a divine purpose to reflect the glorious work of Jesus through the church. And Peter now is moving us a little bit further from the metaphor of a building, the stones positioned in a building, to the metaphor of being members in a body. Move from a building to a body. And last week in verse 9a, we learned that the church is called a people, a people for God's own possession. We are God's chosen together people, a chosen race. You see that in verse 9. We are a commissioned together people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a consecrated together people, a holy nation. We are a people positioned together for a divine purpose. Placed in the body, placed in the building, placed in the, the, the building up of God's spiritual house, the body of Christ. And today in verses 9b through 10, Peter gives us the divine purpose of the people of God. This is your divine purpose. And what I want you to understand, I'm going to give you the outline in just a moment. What I want you to understand, this is a command and a privilege. It's a command and an honor. But if, if you ever wondered who you are and you realize that you are a chosen people, a commissioned people, a consecrated people, a people who belong to God, you need to know why. You have a divine mission. You have a divine purpose. Peter gives us, number one, our mission. And number two, our motivation. He gives us our mission as the people of God and our motivation as the people of God. The motivation to complete our mission. As we look in the text, we'll see at verse 9, we begin there. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. In verse 9b, I want you to look at in particular. You're all of these things so that, it's a very important phrase, you need to circle that phrase. You're all of these things so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In, in verse 9b there, Peter gives us our mission as the people of God. What's your mission? Here's your mission. You are to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're, you're saved and left here for a reason. Don't you ever wonder that? Don't you ever wonder when you go through struggles and suffering why God didn't save you and call you home immediately? Like, let me die and go home because I'm satisfied in Christ. I just want to be with you all the time now. But God has left us here. He has placed us here in the church to put us on mission. You're on mission. You are to go into the earth. You are to go into your families. You are to go into your jobs. You are to go into the world and accomplish something for the glory of God. You are to proclaim the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, your Redeemer, your God and King. That's what you're called to do this morning. In verse 9b, Peter begins with a purpose clause. That, that clause is so that. He, he gives us that to explain why we have been chosen. Why we've been commissioned. Why we've been consecrated. Why has God went to these great lengths to make us a people for his own possession? What is the purpose? He tells us. Purpose is that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. Now what I find encouraging in this text is, Peter is speaking to the church. He's not saying, pastors, your job is to proclaim the excellencies of him and yours alone. No. He says, so that you, he's addressing you, the church, individually, 
corporately, your job, your gift, your privilege, your honor, is to now be an echo of God's grace, to be the one who proclaims the excellencies of Jesus. All of those who are chosen of God are called and saved for one reason. It's for this, to proclaim the excellencies of Him. That is your mission. You weren't saved just to go to heaven. You were saved to glorify God on earth and in heaven. You have a divine calling. And it's not just to to protect you from hell. It's to see and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you do that now, you're going to proclaim Him now for God's glory because it's through Jesus that all men who are ever going to be saved, will be saved. It's through the the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are called to be one who goes out and proclaims it because God has sent someone to proclaim it to you. And God himself came in human flesh and proclaimed his grace to you on the cross. We're all called to proclaim the excellencies, notice in verse 9b, of him. Now you have to ask yourself when you're reading the text, Who is the hymn referring to here? Because this can be a little bit confusing as you read this. But I believe that it's not confusing if you read the context. Hymn refers to Jesus. You see that flow out of verses 4 through 6. Look at verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God the Father. That's Jesus. He's the precious stone. In verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's Him. And then in verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. So I believe that verse 9b is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him. Now what I find interesting here is this word proclaim. When you read that word proclaim in your English translations, it's a little bit vague. It's not the word euangelion. It's not the word caruso. It's not the word to go and preach like I'm doing right this minute. It's not exactly that word. It's a unique word. It's, it's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a what we call a hapax legomenon word. It means it's only used once in the scripture, hapax legomenon. The word proclaim here is exa- exangelo, exangelo. And it means, this is what it means. So you need to understand this so you can understand the command and your mission. This word proclaim means to publish, to publicize, to advertise, to make widely known. And it actually means to make widely known by lifting up the voice and telling it out verbally and loudly. That's your mission when you were singing earlier. That's what you're called to do corporately when you come together with the saints. If you have the living Savior and he has, he has transformed your life, He's taken you from darkness to light, how can you not sing and proclaim and publicize verbally and extremely loud at times His greatness? Peter uses a very specialized word here. And he gives a very specific command to God's chosen people. Now understand this, the church, according to Peter here, by God the Spirit's Inspiration, the church is commanded. It is a command, just like thou shalt not kill. You are commanded by God to publicize Jesus. You're commanded to advertise Jesus. You're commanded to make the excellencies of Jesus widely known in the world and in the church. Now, listen, if we're not doing it in the church, we're never going to do it in the world. 
The church has the primary responsibility to advertise Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, to publicize Jesus, to preach Jesus, to exalt Jesus, so that you would be trained and equipped to go forth and do the same in the world, in your family, in your friendships, in your relationships. We begin our mission in the church. The mission of the church is to preach Jesus. Train and equip the saints to go out and do the same. We're called to make known the glorious work of Jesus Christ. Know about his person. Know about his sacrifice. We, we do that through our worship. We do that through our witness. And, and that's why every ministry in the church is commanded by God here to be Christ-centered. Every ministry is to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. That's why the church exists. Every ministry. Our children's ministry is to exalt the work of Jesus, not make good kids. We can't make good children. We have bad children who need a good Savior. So we preach Jesus to the children. The men's and women's fellowship speak of the perfect man, the perfect one who is going to come and be the exact representation of God to be our Savior as men and women. We speak about Jesus in the men and women's fellowship. We speak about Jesus on our Wednesday night Bible studies because He is the sum and substance of all doctrine as we study the Scriptures. We are called by God to exalt Jesus in the church because Jesus wants His work to be on display in the world. Jesus is happy about His work in your heart. He's happy about His work in your life. And He wants that work to be reflected as you go out into the world. But here in the church, we're called to proclaim an excellent message about Jesus. What do these excellencies consist of? Excellencies is a word that talks about valor or attributes. We are to advertise or proclaim the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim His sinless humanity, His full deity, His compassion towards sinners, His humility to come from heaven's glory to earth, His power to raise the dead and call those dead to life and give them hope. We proclaim that Jesus came, fully God, fully man, to die in our stead. We proclaim that He has taught us, not an example, but He has taught us God's exact words so that we would walk in obedience to God through the work of Christ. We proclaim that Jesus died and that He rose again. Because he is fully God and fully man. We preach the demands that Jesus laid on all who would come to him. You must repent and believe in him. Turn away from sin and trust in this Messiah. We also must proclaim that Jesus is coming again to gather his own. He's coming again to judge the world. Every sermon, every meeting we have is to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, the excellencies of Christ. That is our main mission. That is your mission. You want to be missional? Missional is not a cute colloquialism that we've adopted recently and stuck all over websites. Missional living is being Christ-centered, beginning in the church. This is your mission. Exalt Him here in your fellowship, in your singing, in your hearing of the Word, in your reading of the Word. But you, you, you must demand, I believe, of your leaders... To let me see Jesus when they preach. You must demand of the pastor, me, to let me see Jesus when you stand before me. Because only Jesus can satisfy, only Jesus can heal, only Jesus can give me hope in life. So preach Jesus. And listen, whatever the sermon is, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, if 
If Jesus isn't in the sermon, it's not a sermon. We don't preach self-help. We preach that self damns and that Christ came because of sin and Christ is to be exalted. Self is to be denied and to look to Jesus who denied self to come in our place and stand on our stead on the cross and die for us so that we may rejoice in His excellencies and proclaim His greatness to the world. And I want you to understand a personal conviction I have about this. I, I love you as a church, individually, corporately. I love you as a church. And the reason I, ha- I want to preach Jesus so often, and if, we, if I'm going to fault, I want to fall here. I want to fault on the side that I preach Jesus all the time. I, I preach Jesus because of this. I love you so much, I know that I, I can't keep you from falling. I can't keep you from sin. I can't carry your burdens, but I can point you to the one who did all that for you. I can point you to the, the Savior who carried your sins on His back, and He will, he will keep you from stumbling. You will persevere to the end by looking to Jesus as your hope of salvation, as your strength in sanctification. So I love you too much to preach anything else but Jesus. I'm not going to preach how to have a good marriage. Unless somehow I can get in there that a good marriage is typified in Christ's love for the church. Ephesians 5. I want to preach to you that there are no good marriages apart from Christ. Christ is the sum and substance of all that we are to proclaim. Every message should point to Him. And, and, every, and understand this, every Christian is also called to do what Peter's saying, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in the corporate gathering. You're to build up one another corporately by, by your conversations individually. That's what you're called to do. You're called to use your gifts to exalt the work of Jesus when you come together. Look at 1 Peter 4, 7 exactly what Peter says later in this epistle. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, he says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, where did they learn that? They learned that from Jesus. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Where did they learn that? When he left heaven's glory and he came and he served us with no complaint on his lips. As each one has received a special gift, where did you receive the gift from? You received it from the work of Christ. Employ that gift in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You know what I love about this passage? Peter is giving a command there to love one another in the fellowship and to preach Christ to one another in the fellowship. Use your spiritual gifts in the fellowship. Use these things so you'll build up one another in the fellowship and you receive none of the glory. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. You're called to do this for the glory of God. You're called to come together and proclaim the excellencies of Christ for God's glory so that he would be praised in the church. What I want you to understand is every, I believe Peter's telling us, every conversation, every conversation we have with one another before service starts is actually part of the service of worship. Every conversation we have after the service begins is a part of the worship service. It's a part of exalting Christ. Every conversation should lead us to Jesus. That's why you're here. Don't get past that fact. 
you're here to worship because Jesus came to die in your place. And when you come with this gathering and you look at one another and you say, that's a blood-bought son of God right there. I worship with him. You should be amazed by that. And you should talk about your common faith in Christ. Every song we sing should point to Jesus. We, we, we strive to sing doctrinal songs and preach and teach doctrinally so that we can teach you how to preach Jesus correctly in the world. That's our goal here as a church. Every person here is to be trained so that you can go out from here into the world and proclaim Jesus. This is your commission. This is like reading Peter here, and it sounds like Jesus' words in Matthew 28 when he says, Go out into the world and keep on going. Making disciples. Baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Do this continually. And that's what you're trying to do as you come here to the church. That's your purpose in life. That's your mission. And I want you to not miss this. He's speaking to all of you. He's speaking to you as students. He's speaking to you as employers, employees, parents, husbands and wives. Your purpose in all those roles aren't the roles. It's the mission. God puts you in those roles and those positions for a purpose. Your job is not your purpose. It's not the reason you exist. Your job exists for the purpose of advertising Jesus. That's your mission. Parents, your children are not your purpose for living. You need to think about that for a second. Your children are not your purpose for living. Your children live so that you can teach them to look to Jesus for forgiveness of sins and that they can proclaim the excellencies of His grace. That's why you're a parent. He opened the womb. He gave you the children so that you would teach them about the Savior. And again, if if your mission as a parent is to try to make good children, you've failed already. You can't make good children. We have bad children who need forgiveness. You teach them to look to the Savior. You point them to Jesus. That's what you do because they're always going to fail. They're always going to sin. You haven't got past that yourself, right? Don't forget that. So instead of trying to make them morally appealing on the outside, you address their inward condition spiritually by saying, you are a sinner, son. And there is great hope for sinners. There is a Savior who died to take your place, to give you life, to carry your sins away as far as the east is from the west, so that you would be made right before God by faith and His work. Students, there's a few students here this morning. I particularly want to address you. Students, your mission is not to get an education to secure your future. That's not your mission. Your mission is to proclaim Christ because He has already secured your future. And so you need, to, you need to change your major on the campus to, I want to proclaim Christ. That's what you're called to do. That's your mission. Your future is taken care of by Christ. Your, your financial education or your financial job or your situation is, is not as important as this. If your purpose in life is to raise your children or, to, or your children to go through college so they get a good job, that's a, that's, that's a horrible purpose. Because jobs will pass away. Your life will pass away. Christ will never pass away. So we are to point our students to Jesus. And students, you point your friends to Jesus because that's eternal. Our mission as a church is to be Christ-centered. 
Christ-centered. All of our teaching has to be Christocentric, Christ-focused, and if you put it in my own terms, cross-eyed. We need to have a cross-eyed ministry here where all we can see is the cross in every situation. I look at a hurting Christian and I say, I can't give you self-help. I can give you true help in Christ who died for a sinner like me and you. And He has given us His Spirit and His Word to guide us out of sin and into righteousness. If we don't keep a Christ-centered ministry, and if we don't preach Christ often, we'll become a mission that looks more like the mission of the devil than the mission of Christ. Let me read to you what will happen if we don't do this correctly. Donald Barnhouse, famous preacher from years ago, who influenced Dr. MacArthur greatly. Donald Barnhouse wrote this. If Satan were really to take over a city, the following would happen. The bars would close. No alcohol would be sold. There would be happy marriages and well-behaved children. No crime and everyone would be in churches on Sunday where Jesus is not preached. Weekly sermons about happy marriages, contentment relationships, self-esteem boosters, how to get along in a family gathering, and financial prosperity all reek of the scent of man-centeredness. We are not called to proclaim the excellencies of man. We are called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And I think that I have a precedent for that. I think that all ministry should revolve around the preaching of Christ because Jesus believed that all ministry should revolve around him. Jesus preached Jesus all the time. Do you understand that? Jesus glorified Jesus and enjoyed Jesus forever, and he wants us to do the same. Look at Luke 24. Jesus tells us that Jesus is the focus of all of the scriptures. Luke 24. Luke 24. In verse 25. And he said to these men, these men who are walking with him on the road to Emmaus, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into glory? Then beginning with the law, that's Moses, and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus preached Jesus from the law and the prophets. And look over at verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. There's Peter's word. Proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now what I want you to see in this reference here is this. We're called to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus because Jesus said that's what you're supposed to do. You start with Jerusalem and you go out to the nations. We start in the church and we go out to the world. Jesus did this. Jesus was Jesus-centered in his preaching. You know what Jesus did? Jesus advertised Jesus all the time. None of us can get away with that. If I said, look to me and be saved this morning, you would laugh me to scorn and pull me from the pulpit. But Jesus can walk into a room and say, look to me and be saved this morning. Trust in me. 
have faith in me. And people are saved because Jesus is saying, I am the supreme being of all the world. I am the one who can save you. I am your redeemer. Jesus publicized this. He proclaimed it, as Peter talks about. He proclaimed it, and look in John 6, John 6, 35. And I think what Peter's or what John is doing here and showing us in this text is this is what we're called to do as well. This is the way Peter wants us to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus from the scriptures. John 6, 35. Jesus publicized in this text that he was the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the only one who can satisfy the hunger of a spiritual soul, a sinner who in need of grace. I am the bread of life. He's saying, I will sustain those who come to me. I am the only one who can sustain life. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will will never thirst. Trusting in me, believing in me, coming to me. If you do these things, you will never hunger or you will never thirst. But you have to ask the question when you read that. How do we publicize Jesus? Because when I read that text, I have to ask myself, who is it that hungers and thirsts for Jesus in John 6? Well, John answers us in verses 37 through 39. Those who hunger and thirst for Jesus are those for whom Christ died, the elect. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So if you want to know in verse 35, who comes? It's these that the Father gives to the Son. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day. All that he has been given, the bread of life will sustain. So we need to learn from that as a church. We must also proclaim as a church that Jesus alone is our spiritual food. Jesus alone can satisfy those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We need nothing else. We need no religion. We need no trappings of religion and ritual. We need Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus also publicized in John 8 that he was the light of the world. He's the light of the world. And what does a light do? A light shines the way out of darkness. Jesus said again, or Jesus spoke again to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So again, you have to ask the question, how do we proclaim the excellencies of Jesus here? Who can follow Jesus? Only those that he gives light and life to. So we have to proclaim that Jesus is the one who opens the darkened and dead heart. Jesus opens the spiritually blinded eyes so that we can follow him. We can savor him. We can rejoice in him. He opens us to see the beauty of his grace. If you have embraced Jesus, if you have loved Jesus, if you have came to Jesus this morning, it's because God did this. God shined the light of Christ's grace upon you. Open your dead heart and gave you a new heart. A heart that is sensitive to his spirit and loves his word. Jesus also publicized in John 10, verse 7, that he was the good shepherd. This one's very interesting to me. He is the good shepherd. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. He is saying, I am the 
predominantly good shepherd. I am the only good shepherd. Look what he says in verse 7. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come or all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's no mention of goats there. His sheep. Christ is the door that those who will be saved must enter through. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus only. Only Christ. You must enter through him to be saved. And what's interesting here is this metaphor of a shepherd. This is talking about a shepherd who stands at the gate and becomes the door to the sheep gate. And he says, you can come in. You can't come in. You can come in. You can't come in. You're a goat. You're a wolf. Jesus is the gate. He is the chief shepherd who protects his sheep. So we have to learn to proclaim that, that Jesus guides, Jesus protects us from wolves and goats. We need to understand, too, in this metaphor of Jesus being a shepherd, he's the guardian of our souls. He lays down his life for our sake. And here's the comforting truth that I I take from this. A shepherd would die for his sheep. And this shepherd did. He'll not lose one for whom he died. Every soul for whom Christ died will be raised up, according to John 6, 37-39. Every soul for whom Christ died will be raised to life. He'll not lose any sheep. You'll never stumble completely. When you fall, you look to Christ. He is your righteousness. He is your hope. He is your strength. He is your good shepherd. See, in Luke 24, what, what Jesus said to the men on the road to Emmaus was, all the scripture talk about me. And Jesus pointed it out all through his own ministry. And, and Jesus' proclamation in Luke 24 and all these passages we just read basically was the proclamation of his own excellencies. And by the proclamation of his excellencies, the church was motivated to ministry. The church was shoved out to be obedient, to proclaim. If Jesus proclaims how excellent he is, then we will go from Jerusalem to the nations. So therefore, as a church, we need to be doing that as well. We go from this congregation to the world. That's our command today. Proclaim Jesus in the church and then in the world. What Peter is telling us, if you go back to Peter, is that we are to proclaim Jesus in the church because it will affect the world. The more you know about the Messiah, the more you know about our Savior, the more effectual you will be in the world in your evangelism. The more powerful your proclamation will be. doesn't mean you save anybody. But the world will see that there is a change in this person. And this person is devoted to a Savior who changes hearts and lives and is willing to proclaim it at all costs, even the cost of your financial security, even the cost of friends at times. You will preach Jesus at all costs. Understand this. Peter's telling us that God chose the church to be an echo of God's greatness in Christ. You are to echo the greatness of Jesus. That's your calling. You first echo it in this room, and then you echo it to the world. We're called here to proclaim the excellencies through the church and in the church. That's why you've been saved. And you're brought into the church so that you be equipped 
and edify so you could reach out to the world and speak the truth about Christ. And, and there, this may seem silly to some of you. Maybe, maybe some of you are thinking, well, of course, every church talks about Jesus. Maybe that was the case at one time in history. I don't even think that was the case one time in history. I think there's always been problems with this. As long as we've had men who want to be centered, man-centered rather than Christ-centered, we've always had this problem. But I think even more so today. We can come into a, a congregation of people and we can say, that's a church, and they can stand before you and never talk about Jesus, never open the Scriptures, never point to salvation by faith in Christ alone, never talk about His work, and still consider themselves a church and in worship. But that doesn't seem to be the case with what Peter's telling us the church is meant to do. And I think that you need to understand, many today aren't preaching Jesus. They preach a lot of things outside of Christ. They esteem man, not Christ. You'll hear self-esteem elevated, and Christ esteemed little. Man esteemed much, made much of. Jesus, he gets us in the door. He gets us, he gets us the goodies. We get Jesus, we get... Life, we get peace. That's nice. But these, these, these guys fall short of the mark. We want Jesus. You should be demanding to see Jesus, love Jesus, talk about Jesus when you gather with the saints. There is no sweeter fellowship in the world than when you sit down with a brother or sister in Christ and you talk about the work of Christ. You are thrilled. You are set ablaze. You are ready to witness to the world because you see in your friend and your loved one the work of the mighty sovereign God who can take a dead, depraved sinner, a wretch like me, and transform him or her into a vessel of honor, a vessel that reflects the glory of our Savior. That's our mission as a church. We're to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Turn with me to, to Romans 5. The Apostle Paul did this continually. In Romans 5, we see how Paul faithfully proclaimed the gospel. And this, again, is, a, I think, a mandate for us. If we're going to do this as a church, we need to know the gospel. We need to rejoice in the gospel. We need to exult. That's the word that's used as we read Romans 5. Paul exulted in the gospel. You know what that means? It means you rejoiced or you boast or you glory in the cross of Christ because there your sins were dealt with forever. There you have been forgiven. There you have been given a place in heaven so that you can see and savor Jesus for eternity. And how can that not want to stir you up now, presently, and to go out and proclaim His excellencies to the world around you? Again, understand, witnessing evangelism is nothing more than a heart that's set on fire by Christ and wants to share the goodness of God's grace with the world. That's it. That's what we're called to do. It's why you exist so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into light. And Romans 5 puts it this way, verse 1, Therefore, having been declared righteous, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's through Jesus, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation. Listen, if you get Jesus right, when tribulation comes, you know that he went there before you. And he has promised to keep you. He has promised to bring you home. Therefore, you can go through tribulations rejoicing, suffering, rejoicing. Knowing that tribulation actually works in us for the good. It brings about perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character brings hope. 
Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, and here's the gospel, while we were still helpless, and that's, that's a nice way of saying when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, at the right time, Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the good. He didn't adopt good children. He adopted bad children, and he made them good. He makes them covered in his own righteousness so that they would stand before God unashamed, justified by faith in his work. Verse 7 says, No one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, here's what God did. Here's what God did for you. He demonstrates his own love toward us. How can you get past verse 8? God has put on demonstration his love for the ungodly. Here's how he did it. And then while we were yet sinners, the sinless one died for us. While we were yet ungodly, at enmity, at war with God, blasphemers, sons of the devil, God sent his son to be our savior, to die in our place, receive the wrath we deserve so that we could rejoice in his presence presently. Much more. Can there be much more? Paul, can there be much more than this? Much more then. Not only have we been justified by his blood, we shall be saved continually. That means saved and being saved and will be saved, persevering to the end, will be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, we were brought into peace with God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Listen, for the Christian, the gospel is, is, has to be center. This will keep you, reading this will keep you from self-righteousness. This is the source of your sanctification. Knowing you've been reconciled moves you on out into thankful, gracious obedience and holiness. Because our lives will be saved. We will inherit the kingdom that God has promised. We will inherit all the riches that are guarded, garrisoned by God in heaven according to first peter chapter one because christ left heaven's glory to come and die in our place if you are a believer in christ we have to proclaim that jesus came to live a life of righteousness for us because man is radically and totally depraved and enslaved to his own sin and could never nor would ever come to god on his own he is incapable and unwilling to come to god we preach Jesus because there is no one else who can bring the dead to life. Christ came not only to do that, he came to live the holy life that we were commanded to live but never could. Jesus became our righteousness. At every point in his life, he was tempted yet without sin because we would be tempted and sin at every point in our life. Yet Jesus lived a righteous life in our place. His righteous life, not just his death, but his righteous life was imputed to you on the cross. You have a positive righteousness in God's sight because of Jesus' righteous, holy life. We have to preach that. We have to proclaim that. That's one of your excellencies. That's what you, you go out of here proclaiming. When you gather with your brothers and sisters and you're rejoicing, this is what you rejoice about. Though I am not perfect, though I am not fully as far in sanctification as I would like to be, Jesus was for me. He is my righteousness. 
He is the holiness that God requires of me. I, by faith, believe that He lived that life in my stead. I am therefore not afraid of the wrath to come because Jesus received it for me and gave His righteous life to me. We proclaim that Jesus not only came to live a righteous life, that Jesus came to die our death. Jesus came to the cross to carry our sins and have our sins, understand this, on the cross, there was a divine exchange going on. Your wretchedness, your vileness, and your sins were laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One. Your sins were imputed to Him. He was sinless. He had no sin in Him. He was completely holy. But God in grace and love for you laid your sins upon the Savior and took the Savior's righteousness and covered your sins. He covered you and Jesus died to receive the wrath you deserve. On the cross, our sins were imputed to Christ. And at the same time, His righteousness was laid to our account by grace alone. Pure, sovereign love. Mercy. That's how this happened. Do you wonder why you were saved? But God, who is rich in mercy, He saved you. He saved you by suspending His Son between heaven and earth to take your place, to be your mediator, to receive your wrath, to give you His righteousness, to bring you home to glory, to see the glory of Jesus. You're saved to see and savor Jesus and proclaim His excellencies. That's what you're called to do. You're called to proclaim the greatest exchange that ever took place in the history of the world. Golgotha was created for Jesus so that you would proclaim His excellencies. You realize when God spun the world into existence, He says, this will be my creation that I will exalt my Son on. There I will display my grace and my mercy and my power and my love and my justice and my righteous indignation against sin. And I'll do all of this on a rock called Golgotha where I'll send my son to take the place of my elect people. Those for whom Christ died will be raised up. Before the foundation of that world, God had made that decree. All that Christ died for would be raised up. On the cross, the sinless Christ became sin for us and died in our place. He died in the place for all who repent and believe the gospel. There's the catch. Jesus didn't come to make salvation available. As if God was gambling with sending Jesus into the world, thinking, I hope some believe in him. It's probably not going to happen because they're all dead in their sins and trespasses, have no life in them, so I don't really know what's going to happen with this gamble. No, Jesus didn't come on a gamble. He didn't come to make salvation available. He came to accomplish redemption for God's elect. And if you're a, you're a Christian this morning, that's why. God didn't make it available. God accomplished it by sending His Son to take your place. We proclaim not only that He died in our place, but He rose in our place. He rose from the grave, declaring that He had conquered sin, Satan, and death. We proclaim that He did that for us. And that His resurrection testifies to the fact that His sacrifice in our place was pleasing and acceptable to a holy God. God was pleased with the life and the death of Jesus so that we would have His righteousness imputed to us and sing His praises 
and follow Peter's command to declare his work to the world. Go back with me to 1 Peter 1, verse 18. We have to declare that Jesus was declared sin for us and we were declared righteous by faith in Jesus' work. That's your mission. That's part of your call as a Christian to proclaim this excellent truth. And, And understand this, you're proclaiming the work that was ordained by God before the foundation of the world. You didn't make up this message. You're simply echoing the message that God had decreed before the world was created. God had decreed before the world was created He would would send His Son to be your Savior in the covenant of redemption. He said, I'm going to have a people. They're going to have a Savior so that Jesus will will be made much of in the world and for eternity. All of redemption and your sanctification and your life revolves around glorifying Jesus and enjoying Him now and forever. That's why you're saved. Let me just ask you, are you proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus in your life, in your family, in your work, in your friendships, on the campus? Because if if you're not, you're missing out on God's call in your life. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be self-centered. You're going to be all about you rather than all about Him. And you will not find satisfaction in you. You'll only find satisfaction and joy in Jesus. If you want to have a happy life, if you want to have a joyful life, preach Jesus, not yourself. Your best life now came as a result of God's Son coming to die in your place so that you would have true life for eternity and make much about Jesus, not about you. It's not about your life now. It's about the life that He lived and died in your stead so you could praise Him forever. You were saved to reflect the glory of Jesus. That's why you exist. Jesus did this work. He was ordained by God to do this work before the world was created. 1.18 Knowing that you were not redeemed, you were not purchased, you were not bought back with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You were bought back with the precious blood, the valuable blood of, as of the lamb unblemished and spotless means the holy, righteous life of Christ, the blood of Jesus For Jesus was foreknown. He was foreordained. He was chosen out before the world was created, is what he says, before the foundation of the world. But Jesus has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. For the sake of you. We're called to proclaim that excellent truth. We're called to proclaim the excellences of Jesus openly and passionately. And I hope hope you're receiving that this morning. I hope there's a passion stirring in your heart. I hope there's a, a gratitude that's growing in your heart right now as you think about what God has done so that you can make much about Jesus this day in the church. You're here by grace this morning. By God's unmerited favor. So that you could proclaim Christ out of love for God. And not only do we proclaim Christ out of love for God, we proclaim Jesus out of love for those who are yet to be called. Do you know there are a people that are yet to be called, and you are given the divine privilege of being the messengers of this great gospel to those that God will yet call in the future. And you will be gathered with them one day around the throne of God, and you'll look and you'll see a multitude of multitudes singing the praises of Jesus. And you will know that God in grace allowed you to be a messenger of that great gospel. That's amazing. At the end of 
chapter or verse two, verse nine, or chapter two, verse nine and ten, Peter gives us our second point. This is what should motivate us toward our mission. It's the mercy of God. We're motivated to proclaim Jesus because of God's great mercy toward us. This is your motive while you go out and preach. You're commanded, but he also gives us a motive. Isn't it nice what he says here? Look at verse 9b and 10. He says, you were saved, you were set apart, so forth, as a holy nation, God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you, the one who called you out of darkness. That's what you're saved to do, to proclaim his excellencies. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter just just compiles this. Not only has he removed you from darkness into light, you're recipients of God's mercy, His sovereign grace. Here's the command, and here's the motive to the command. You have been saved, therefore go and remind others that God who saves, He saves in mercy. Not based on our works, but on the work of His Son. Peter's reminding us of how mercy came to us at the end of verse 9 there. God had appointed, listen to this, I want you to understand this. God, at an appointed time, called you by sending someone to you to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. The very thing you're being commanded to do, God did out of great mercy for you. He called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That darkness there is spiritual depravity. Spiritual darkness blinded by your sins, unable to find the door out. And in God's mercy, He sent someone to you to proclaim Christ's excellency. And through that, by His ordained means and by His ordained plan, you were brought out of the trap of spiritual darkness and brought into the light of Christ. The power that He's talking about here is the power that draws us out of spiritual darkness. It's called the effectual call of God. The word there in verse 9c where it says he has called you, that word called is the word kaleo. It means to be summoned to appear before a superior. There is no choice involved here. You have been summoned out of darkness. It means to be summoned to appear in court. This call in verse 9 is the effectual call of God to salvation. It is the call of irresistible grace. When the sovereign God, understand this, when the sovereign God of the universe calls, summons you, it is effectual. It's effectual. And understand this too. It's not an invitation. It's not an invitation. According to Ephesians 2, it's an awakening. You weren't invited to come to Jesus. You were brought to Jesus by God's great mercy. And he awakened your soul to see the glory of Jesus as your substitute, as your Savior, as your hope of standing before a holy and righteous God. It's not an invitation. It's an awakening of the soul. Look at Ephesians 2. Very familiar passage to us here at Sovereign Grace, but this is one we need to read. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There is no invitation. You were dead. Dead men don't respond. You lived in these things formerly. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Talks about our nature here. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. 
And then one of the greatest phrases in Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, he summoned us. That's what he's going to say here. He's summoning us. He's bringing us. He's calling us. We were dead in our transgressions. Made us alive together with Christ. He made you alive. He summoned you from the dead. He said, live, and you live. New heart, new mind, new eyes. Now you behold the glory of Jesus. Because He summoned you from the dead. God can do that, you know. The God who said, let there be light. It wasn't an invitation. It was a call. He summoned light into existence. And the universe leaped. And jumped and declared the glory of God by shining brilliant lights and stars, multitudes and multitudes throughout the universe. Jesus shows us that he is the God who does this. We get types and shadows of this. Quickly go to Matthew 5. We get a type and shadow of the fact that Jesus can call the dead to life. Matthew, or I'm sorry, rather, Mark 5. Mark 5. Mark 5, 38. But Jesus, overhearing what had been spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the synagogue official. And as he saw a commotion and people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. They began laughing at him, but putting them all out, he took along the child's father and mother and his own companions and entered the room where the child was, taking the child by the hand. This is what he did to you, if you're a believer this morning. Taking the child by the hand, said to her, Talitha, come. Which translated means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, The girl got up and began to walk, for she was 12 years old. And immediately, they were completely astounded. Jesus gives life to the dead with the word of his power. Get up. That's how he called you. Look at Luke 7. We see this again, prefigured in Christ, of what he's going to do to us spiritually, to awaken us from our deadness. When the sovereign one calls, There is no need for invitation. He calls with power. He doesn't need us to exert energy. He is coming with life and light and giving life. Look what Luke 7, 11 says this. Soon afterwards, he went to the city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God. Listen, this is, this is what happened to you when God converted your soul. 
God looked at you with compassion like Jesus looked at this crowd and these parents and this widow. And He spoke and said, live. And you came forth called to proclaim the glory of God. That's what you're called to do. God's effectual, irresistible, sovereign grace is greater. It is so much greater than man's resistance that no man who is called by a sovereign God can say no. His effectual, all-powerful, sovereign, unmerited favor through the work of His Son brings many sons to glory. And not one of them says no. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Doesn't that give you some motivation to proclaim His excellencies in the church and in the world? I think it should. Peter Peter wants us to know that God's sovereign grace... Go back to 1 Peter with me. Or rather, go to Acts. Go to Acts. And I appreciate your patience this morning, but this is an important message we need to hear. Peter wants us to understand something. I think we need to make this really clear right now. He wants us to understand that God's sovereign grace is what fuels biblical evangelism. If you want to be an evangelist, if you want to be a witness, it is through this doctrine that you will be fueled and empowered and given boldness. Here's here's why. Here's what we're called to do. We're simply called to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all we're called to do. We're called to be faithful with the message, knowing that the elect of God will hear that message and they will respond in faith and repentance to the message of Jesus. You have that knowledge. That is your fuel. You're called to be faithful. God's called to save. And those for whom He has chosen, they're going to hear that message and they're going to respond. This should motivate you and give you boldness when you witness. We know that there are those out there who have already been chosen by God, marked out from before the foundation of the world. And all we're called to do is go out and lift up our voice. And then God will open up the ears. He'll open the ears of those for whom Christ died. Understand this, when we lift up our voices and advertise Jesus, God will open the heart of His elect children. That's what you're called to do. Isn't that a great confidence booster right here in evangelism? You open your mouth, and those that are elect will be saved. It's not up to you, but you're called to proclaim these excellencies and watch God work. We know that happens according to Scripture. Go to Acts 18. We know that God will draw His elect through the proclamation. His ordinary means, His primary means is to draw His elect through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is God's primary means of bringing the elect to salvation. We know that according to Scripture because we see it here in Acts 18, an example of this. What was going on? Let me give you a little tiny history here. Paul is in the city of Corinth. Corinth is a pagan city full of sexual immorality. It's rampant, okay? It's a bad place. It's a place you wouldn't want to send your daughter or your wife, and maybe you don't want to go there either, okay? Horrible place. It's a bad place. And and Paul's out there preaching his heart out. He is preaching Christ and Him crucified. The hope of sinners. Repent from your sin and turn to faith in Christ. And the people were resisting his messages. There was resistance. There was, matter of fact, there was even blasphemy against Christ. 
when Paul preached. And Paul, just like all of you, when you run into resistance in preaching the gospel against hard people, you get weary and you want to quit. Paul is ready to quit. And when you get to Acts 18, you understand Paul is, is physically worn. He's spiritually tired. And he's ready to quit. These, these hard-hearted, dead, depraved sinners are never going to come to Christ. I'm done. I've preached. They've resisted. They've blasphemed. I'm out of here. So what God did was God gave him a vision and a mission to motivate him. Look what Acts 18.4 says. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he, took, he shook out his garments. See, he's ready to quit. And said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in, a, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, Paul, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. What? Paul's saying, wait a minute, I've been doing this and doing this, and I'm ready to quit. It's time to move on. No, he says, go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For, for, because, because I have many people in this city. He didn't mean there was a large population of people. I have many of my elect in this city. God told him, go on speaking the excellencies of Christ. Go on speaking about Jesus in this pagan environment. Go on doing this, because I have many people in this city. And listen, Paul went by God's command, and through God's ordained means, he preached Jesus and him crucified, and God birthed a church in this pagan city. God brought forth out of immorality and impurity a bride fit for Christ because he proclaimed the excellencies of Jesus because God told him, I have many people in that city. Today, I think as we read through this and read through Peter, God's speaking to us at Sovereign Grace this morning, telling us, go on speaking about the excellencies of Jesus. For I have many people in Ada. I have many people in this community. I have many people in your family. So go on. Go on in faithfulness, whether or not you see the results. The results aren't up to you. You preach Jesus for his glory. Go on, because Jesus is worthy of all praise and honor and exaltation. So you keep on preaching the excellencies of Christ. Even when there's resistance and blasphemy, you preach Jesus. You proclaim Jesus, the excellencies of his name. And what I want you to understand, go back to Peter. I'm getting close to being done here, but just bear with me. This is my heart. This is, this is something that I've, I've looked at all week. And I want you to understand something. I believe if any church in Ada is going to do this, it needs to be us. I believe that Jesus birthed this church so that we would be a lighthouse to the lost and a safe haven to the elect. Okay? That's what I believe our mission is. I believe that if we're faithful to the mission of preaching Christ, then through His ordained means, we may just see many in this city brought to faith in the Lord Jesus and brought into this church. 
We may see that. However, I know this. You can read some of the prophets and find out that they preached Christ from the Old Testament and never saw a convert. That doesn't stop me. We keep on proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, even when there's opposition. Even when it looks like we're not making any headway. We're not. But we don't know the work that God's doing in the hearts of those who hear this message and how they carry it forward to someone else. And I think when we realize that, we realize that we have this message by and through God's great mercy. We would want to share that more openly with others around us. That is one of the motivating factors that Paul, or that Peter rather, gives us in this text. We may see those people come to him through his mercy, but we also may see those people come to him because you've been obedient to the command, this ordained command to go and proclaim Jesus. We're not hyper-Calvinists here. We believe God has ordained the end and the means to the end, which is the preaching and the exaltation of Jesus. We want to get that in balance. And we preach Jesus constantly and faithfully, whether we see one person converted immediately. Because God will have His people. God will bring His many sons to glory. God will not let one elect sinner go. He'll bring them. And the glory of it all is He might use you because you have been mercied by God. He might use you. That's the motivation in verse 10 that we see. Peter uses, we should be motivated by God's mercy to obey the command we're given in verse 9. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God and had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see what he says in the first part of verse 10? You were once not a people. He means you were nothing. You were nobodies. You were worthless. You were an enemy of God and under his wrath. That's who you were. But then... But then God acted in sovereign grace and He moved upon you by sending His Son to take your place and opening your eyes to see the glory of Christ through the proclamation of the excellencies of His name. And God called you out of darkness into light. God who said you were nothing now has made you a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own glory. We were once objects of His divine wrath, His righteous, holy wrath, but now we've been made objects of His divine love through the work of Jesus. That's why we proclaim it. It's Jesus' love that brought us into a loving relationship with our Father. Election is God initiating a love relationship with His children through the work of His Son. Peter says that we are now the people of God. We were the enemies, but now we are the people of God. We are the mercied people of God. We now love God. We now want to serve God. We now want to obey God. We now want to walk with God. We now want to share the glories of our God with others because of God's divine mercy. That's, that's the motivating factor for your life in sanctification. In obedience, it's remember that you've been mercied. That's your message. You've been mercied by God. God had compassion for you in your sin and sent His Son to be your Savior. This is who you are. You are the mercied children of God. And you are the messengers. That's why you're here. You're the messengers of God. That's why you're left on this planet and God didn't sweep you off once you were saved. He left you here to be a messenger, an echo of His mercy in the world, in your family, wherever you go. That's your purpose. That's your mission. 
Your job is, is given to you so that you would be a missionary to exalt the name of Jesus in that workplace. You actually have physical skills by God's design to do what you do so that you would exalt Jesus there on your workplace. You have the mind you have because God has created it that way so that you would exalt Christ in your thinking, in your activities that you do in life. You're God's chosen people and commanded to proclaim His excellencies. That's why you're chosen. That's why you were chosen before the world was created. That's why you're placed here in the church. You're called to proclaim Christ and His sovereign grace to the world. And if you're here this morning, and you are, and you're a child of God, then this this command is directed right at you this morning. It's not me. You're not listening to me. You're listening to God. God is commanding you, preach Jesus and exalt His work everywhere you go, in all aspects of your life, in your family, in your work, in your playtime. Understand this. Your mission field is right here in the church. This is where your mission begins. You exalt Christ by edifying one another. And your mission field lies right outside those doors. Your mission field is your job. Your mission field are your children. So go and keep going. Keep proclaiming the excellencies of our Savior, Jesus Christ, because God has many people in this city that will hear because God opens their ears when you proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. So let's pray and give him thanks for that this morning as you go out and publicize, advertise, proclaim the excellencies of Jesus as a church. Father, we thank you that you have given us not only a new standing, a new position in Christ, you have also given us a new mission. You've called us to be not just hearers, but doers also. You've called us into service to be a priesthood, to be serving and exalting and lifting up sacrifices of praise with our lives as we go to one another and edify one another in the church, and as we go into the world to preach Christ and evangelize the lost. Lord, I pray that you in all of this would be the one driving our motives, driving our hearts so that you would be praised. We would not, we would not want to rob you of any glory thinking that we make, we make the choice, we make the, the last and final decision in anyone's conversion. We, we are simply just called to be the echoes of your mercy. So Lord, we pray that we would be faithful echoes so that Jesus would be heard and seen and that your children would be saved. I believe Peter's telling us that this morning. We are called for this reason. We are chosen and set apart for this reason. Help us to see it and walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.